2: You go and check me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a day. I'm hungry. Bring me some pills on which to dine. I'm thirsty Bring me some whiskey, gin some wine Bring me your jokes, your glance that looks away Your tired touch your smirks and such Don't save me for a rainy day Maybe you love me for an hour a day a week I'm not sure when it all slipped away but I'm still lying crying at your feet a ball and chain an old refrain to the man who will not even speak it's no good
0: for Hello I'm Peter Aires and welcome to Stages it's terrific to have your company Post-post-modern diva Meow Meow has hypnotised, inspired and terrified audiences globally with unique creations and sellout seasons from New York's Lincoln Centre and Berlin's Bar Yeda Vernunft to London's West End and the Sydney Opera House. She is a prolific original music, theatre and dance theatre creator who has engaged us with a vast variety of performances that include forays onto the stage with orchestras, untuned pianos, and candlelit spaces. As well as giving eclectic stage turns as Titania at the Globe Theatre, Jenny in the Thripney Opera in Paris, La Maîtresse in the Umbrellas of Cherbourg in the West End, and Miss Adelaide in Guys and Dolls with the Royal Philharmonic at Royal Albert Hall. It is a career as eclectic, exciting, and unpredictable as one would expect from such unique and vibrant talent. Meow Meow is a favourite performer at Adelaide Cabaret Festival and returns this year performing with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. Meow Meow's Pandemonium plays at Her Majesty's Theatre on June 18th. Stages had a long overdue catch-up with Meow and was enamoured to find that she is as effervescent as ever.
1: That's good. Yeah. We We are no ASIO here.
0: No ASIO here. We're just going for it.
1: Well, actually, probably ASIO is here, but we've we've given up permission.
0: Yes, yes. And if they're any good, we won't know that they're here. Meow, meow, how lovely to catch up with you again.
1: Gorgeous. I wish, cool. I wish that the readers could see your beautiful face and indeed mine, but they'll just have to get our docile, docile you and most- <laughs>
0: <tones>. <laughs> You have the most beautiful face. Um, is there a beauty regime that you follow, meow?
1: Look. It's sometimes I'm I'm embarrassed to say I've had to sleep with my entire face on as opposed to peeled off and just carry on. You know, the bizarreness of lashes and lipstick, which I so love, but you can, you know, you can find bits and pieces in beds, your own and others. <laughs> I think bits of you peel off, you know, which is so it's, it's a beauty regime that seems to involve um, disintegration, I'd have to say and then gaffering things back together. <laughs>
0: uh, you're an international citizen. Uh, there's yes. a lot of travel that that you've done in, in um, pursuing your, your lifestyle and, and or your talents. Uh, Barcelona, London, New York, Japan, you're everywhere. Um, the jet lag, is, is that tough?
1: It is. Well, you just sort of, you just ignore it and carry on and then you have a huge... Collapse. I was on tour with the wonderful um, Pink Martini Orchestra uh, just before the world, you know, changed completely with the pandemic, and that was in during the summer festivals in Europe. You know, you're in a tour bus, um, old style, uh, and Thomas and I are very good together because we're both big snorers, so we we sort of enjoy sleeping guilt-free for once <laughs> in our little bunks. But we really would often wake up, you know the next morning and say, Siri, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> because it was crisscrossing, you know, all these French music festivals and then ar- waking up in Budapest and then you travel cross country and be in Spain. It was, was fantastic. Um, but there were a few genuine occasions of, I don't know who I am or what legs to put
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> if it's Friday, it must be Berlin.
1: Pretty much, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about Thomas Lauderdale and um, and Pink Martini because that's a relationship you've had for quite a while now. Appearing on uh, their, their album uh, "Get Happy" and also doing yes. lots of concert with them, and and actually writing some stuff for a recent album, um, "Hotel Amore.
1: That's right. That has been. Um, it was. I would say to your listeners, you know, you have to always take the. Don't say no to things if you have a, a sneaky feeling that it's exciting, because. You know, my whole career is really based on saying yes to what were obscure offers at the time that have eventually led to the mega megastar you, you hear before you. But, um, you know, the whole thing with Thomas was I was in Berlin doing a show, uh, Dublin Festival called and said, we've just had a band dropout, can you get on a plane and come and do something? We have a convention of... Uh, performance venues here. Can you get on a plane and just do something? You won't be advertised, uh, but we we need something. So I got on a plane, they got me a pianist. We worked really hard for a couple of hours and put on a completely mad show. And at the end of that, Christy Edmonds came backstage, who I didn't know, but she was um, uh, the curator of the uh, Portland, Oregon Time-Based Arts Festival. And she came backstage and said, I have to take you to the west coast of America there's this there's this guy I think I think you're just going to really I think you have to you have to meet him and that was Thomas Lauderdale and she she invited me to perform at her festival and it really was love at first sight in an artistic way yes but um really a passionate friendship that began uh and that was really because, you know, something fell out in Berlin, in um, Dublin. I was in Berlin. I said yes to jumping on the plane. Someone happens to be in the audience who says, I think you'd like this person. And years later we've toured the world together. We've written that whole album. And it's given me, you know, often when I'm writing with someone like Ian Grandage, the beautiful Australian composer, you know, we're very entwined and I can send him all of my, Angsty and anguish lyrics, and it goes back and forwards. It's it's very collaborative in that way. Thomas is also super collaborative, but he much prefers something less dark in a way, and that's actually been really good for me as a writer. To, um, in you know, it's just different ways of collaborating. I guess different musicians bring different things out in you. But he's such a um, deep. Listener, that you do. I mean, we mastered the album about four times because he wasn't happy with it. It's very specific the way that he works, and we recorded part of it in Portland and part of it at the Capitol Studios in Los Angeles, which is just, you know, an amazing thrill to go in there. And uh, we had a, I did a duet with Rufus Wainwright for that album, and you know, hearing Rufus on the Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole microphone down the halls of capitol i mean it's just sort of ridiculous and and in the moment very conscious that these are really beautiful special moments just so pleasurable so through thomas i guess i've performed at hollywood bowl with him i've performed you know huge music festivals 20,000 people you know it's it's thrilling and then he's still just as happy to do something mad and crazy with just the two of us in a tiny little you know, the oldest strip club in Portland, for instance, Mary's Strip Club, which is all um, which is all female-owned and fantastic, and the oldest drag bar on the West Coast, which is in Portland as well, Darcells. So, you know, that's a, it's a lovely to be able to have those adventures. And I think when I'm performing my own show with orchestra, it's pretty exhausting because I'm responsible for the whole thing. And when I have a little break and tour with Pink Martini, it's just... You know, I don't have to worry about anything. I can just have a beautiful time, you know, with a, with a glorious orchestra around me, and it's really quite often when one when one thinks I, I could die like this, honestly, with just that wall of sound. It's it's magical.
0: Yeah, there must be joyous experiences. I'm, I must admit, when I'm having a down day, I'll put on a pink martini. Album yeah. and and probably pour myself a pink martini and have the exactly. best time. <laughs> it's a real yeah, pick I mean, me up. I think
1: it would be a churlish person who didn't find their music delightful. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think mm. that's a really rare thing to have something that, um, you know, it's a, the mini orchestra that we. It's interesting because the songs aren't per se political, but I think because of the the times that we're living in, they become the multiculturalism of the band and the exotica of the sound has accidentally become political. So, you know, when we were playing at Royal Albert Hall, I'm sort of thinking this is, in and of themselves, this music is just exquisite, but at the same time, the very nature of, uh, you know, a Lebanese song rubbing up against uh, Ari Shapiro singing the lyrics to the... Like, it's very interesting, this sort of... um, a vision of a, a more harmonious world, I think, that's very beautiful.
0: Well, that song that you perform on Get Happy, is it, that's Japanese yeah. origins, isn't it?
1: No, it's uh, Mandarin. Mandarin, is it right? Yeah, from the 1920s. And uh, I'm waiting for you to come back, that one. Yeah, fantastic. And yeah. Then, but they really do, you know, they try to... It was interesting, the last concerts we did at Hollywood Bowl... Some people, you know, just they they were sort of angry with with Pink Martini that they didn't do all of their favourites. And Pink Martini sort of said, look, we've been going for 25 years. We've recorded, I don't know, over 400 songs in over 135 languages. It's impossible to get everyone's favourite. But I think Thomas's generosity of spirit is always such that you know, on that night he'd managed to gather about 15 ex-Miss Americas from the early years to all come on stage and sing I Am Woman. Um, He had uh, a um, a most brilliant um, civil rights activist in her 80s who sang Love for Sale with the orchestra, with the El He Philharmonic, amazing voice. But, like, just the most kind of, it's a wonderful energy to work with, so I, I feel very lucky that in my Saying yes and jumping on the plane to things, uh, you know. Obviously, there has to be a connection, but it is—it does keep you going. I think in in the dark times, that those musical um, little boosts of adrenaline and beauty.
2: I looked for love in the beautiful cities. I looked for love up in the air. I looked underground, though I knew that I shouldn't. Still, no love was anywhere. I went to the place they call heaven. I went to the Hotel Amour. I sat still and wrote love some letters. But love doesn't read anymore. I sang love into my story. And I danced love into my dreams But love didn't find me Let alone blind me Love is nowhere the bow, I fixed up some wings and I bought all the permits so love could take flight when it was grown I followed the maps I read all the signs I bought love a building called home I filled in the forms and I paid all the taxes still love left me
0: You're performing with a, a symphony orchestra once again um, in June, this, the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. You're in town for the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. That must be exciting yes, very to exciting. have a, a, a gig in, in Oz again.
1: Well, always that, that festival is so special, I think, always because it is specific, you know, and so often you are, you are the singer in a festival or you don't really meet your colleagues. And I, I that's a very special festival in my heart because, you um, You know, you're actually with your colleagues and that's a a beautiful thing to have a dedicated festival that uh, when Julia Holt particularly was, you know, really beginning it um, and set a great template, I think, for the other artistic directors who came after her, that there was a notion also that the artists would all uh, come a little bit earlier and stay a bit longer and have a bit of time together because so often, you know, you're just really busy on the tour bus and it's, it's very lovely to have a kind of sense of um, gathering and family and similar world experiences. It makes that that time in Adelaide very special, I think. And, so I can't wait because I'm in the new theatre, uh, the new refurbished, the new Madge, yeah. um, which is just thrilling, uh, really exciting, and and also that orchestra. I mean, I've done this show with the London Philharmonic and um, Seattle Symphony and done it at the Opera House. It's a Melbourne Symphony. It's really, it is a joyous, it's a joyous place to be with an orchestra and it's a lot of the songs I've written with Thomas or Ian Grandage and there's, of course, my favourites, Kurt Weill and Brecht in there and Jacques Brel. But the arrangements are really fantastic, so it's a really meaty play for the orchestra. And it's funny, but it is musically it's just magic. I have to say it's absolutely, I feel like I'm in the right space, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I love performing with just, you know, of course, I love the flexibility of, of a, just, you know, working with an intrepid pianist or or a band, but having that wall of sound that is so intricate and so transcendent, it really is, yeah, it's life-saving for me, but it feels that you're just part of something Enormous, that is really moving.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: Will, will there be crowd surfing? Because uh, cr- crowd surfing there is... Be. There may be. It's I mean, not a, put, it, it, Is it guaranteed? I'll put a a meow on meow? My head.
1: No, it's not guaranteed. Bizarrely, right. when we did the concert with Melbourne Symphony... <laughs> Last year, we bizarrely got in just between two two lockdowns was the most surreal experience. So I made everyone pump vigorously and put um, disinfect their hands before they entered the sacred space of the stage. (laughs) But but we got, I mean, it was kind of amazing because four days later, um, Melbourne was in lockdown again and I kept checking the website, am I a super spreader? Um, But it seems in that instance, not. Now, however, so I'm not sure. We'll see. It's certainly not necessary. It's fun. It's a quick way to get to know the audience and to strike fear into their hearts. Um, But, no, it's by no means necessary. And, uh, you know, sometimes I send out a celery stick. We're pretty much the same thing. One learns that it is enough to stand and sing, in fact, but sometimes the mood strikes and it must be done.
0: And you throw caution to the wind and leap into that audience. Have you ever been dropped?
1: <laughs> no, thankfully, knocking on some kind of wood. Um, no, I've had very it usually because I, I sort of spread myself so luxuriously across people, and it's often you know extremely painfully slow. So the descent is slow if there is one, and usually by that point someone has come to the rescue and up we go again. It's kind of, I mean, its I've had unbelievable bruising. I must say I did a gig in Mikhail Baryshnikov's festival in um, Florida and it was quite an elderly audience and I had little, tiny, little, <laughs> little finger bruises all over my legs afterwards. <laughs> so I've had some fantastic bruising, but I'm very careful because also I don't want to injure anyone it's it's usually an expression of joy and part of the ridiculousness of course is that I've got these ridiculous long legs and they're all tangled up and you know (laughs) it's um thus far I've been lucky
0: wonderful what what does meow meow enjoy most about being on stage
1: you know it's the music it is it is being part of that I love making people laugh I really love that. But uh, I think the times when your head comes off basically and it feels like the roof is coming off the ceiling when, you, when you're when really just part of something really bigger and undeniable and I feel particularly with the way the arts has been so neglected during the pandemic and, and really I found that really difficult and I think often that's because, you know, what we want to be the arts... It's just they're just not good enough, so they do get dismissed. And when you have something that's really phenomenally good, I find that, um, like I, I went and saw Kunstkammer. Oh, yes, yes. Australian Ballet. Have you seen that?
0: I'm going to see it um, in a couple of weeks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> just, I just felt after all of this time of sort of being... um shattered and questioning what are we all doing and feeling that the arts are so underutilized and not we're not taking advantage of the fact that music heals. I'm not being wanky, I really think it does. And I felt particularly, you know being um that we didn't really wrangle it into hearts and minds of soothing people around the world, which we could have done more of. And so seeing something that is just whether you like that piece or not, something is so undeniably, Virtuosic from everyone in the company. It's a work of art, and it's also totally engaging. It's just undeniably fantastic and thrilling. And I haven't had that experience for so long. And that's the same feeling I think when you get when you're on stage when something's really connecting that it's undeniable, it's just flowing through you. And um I did feel like that when we with the symphony shows when There's a couple of songs that, um, particularly that Ian Grandage has arranged that are just so exquisite, a couple that Meg Washington wrote for me. And I always feel I can feel Meg. She wrote the songs. um, You know, I wrote the B sections. Ian has arranged them. Pink Martini's arranger then did a little tweak on one of them and then sent it back to Ian. There's layers and layers of love, friendships, adventures and music in all of those sonic so by the time it gets to the symphony stage, you know, it's every note is lovingly made and it's a huge orchestra. There's a part where I often get the orchestra to walk on singly because I want to show the audience, you know, just how many people mm. it takes to make that sound and how integral that all is. It's it's thrilling. I think that's I've done, I had um, I was lucky enough to play Miss Adelaide, would you believe? Um did you hear Perfect about this? Perfect casting.
0: I did hear about that, that you well, played Adelaide.
1: At, at, um and it was at Royal Albert Hall. And, of course, I was beside myself with anxiety because I thought, oh, there'll be a zillion West End girls there speaking like it. <laughs> but there was a point, you know, that is just such a brilliantly written role. There's so much room for pathos and poignancy and hilarity. And there was a point standing on stage during that and, you know, looking up at that enormous space and feeling, oh, that's actually what I imagined when I was little that, that you know, being on stage would be like. It's that—it's some connection to, I don't know what it is, something bigger than you. The material is fantastic. The audience is with you. You're with them. You're all sort of, you're all somehow this pulsating body i love it and it's the same with comedy there's no people can't pretend to be giggling hysterically they just are
0: <laughs> yes yes you, you are or you That's are it. not i oh,
1: have I played know. i have played a role where i had to laugh you know while something terrible german a german piece of course laugh and laugh <laughs> and laugh, and, laugh. And, and, and yes i did learn to manufacture it so i must i must backtrack <laughs> but there have been those things have been really good and other times you walk in and you think has it come to this
0: <laughs> never, never, never. Uh, do you have many moments like that?
1: Sometimes I think sometimes those. I mean, I remember doing a um, uh, like an AIDS gala at Chez Maxim's in Paris, and being incredibly excited to perform at this legendary place. And then we walked in, and they're like, "Oh no, no, you cannot stand in the center of the stage, madam, because you know it's c'est interdit. It's forbidden. It's uh, broken. You cannot stand there." So there's a big sort of gaffer tape cross in the centre of the stage where one can't stand, it's a tiny stage. So then I go to adjust the lights so that they'll hit my face. And They're like, no, 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 we're so sorry, but you cannot you cannot touch the lighting because it's very old, so it has to stay there. And I just sort of stand in front of the cross leaning backwards so that I would get a bit of light on my face. And then the piano sort of gets weird out, wheeled out and it's just incredibly out of tune and we say Is the tuna coming today? Oh, no, 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 he was here two months ago. It's great, you know. (laughs) But at the same time, it's sort of like, yeah, you, you. I think Emma Rice, a fabulous director that I've worked with, she's always like, pick your battles. So you have to go, okay, it's this kind of event. I'm not going to, you know, what am I really going to get in a tiz about or not? Um, But, yes, there's, there's those things where you think, oh, this will be, and then you go, oh, no, it's, Oh, it's this.
0: Let's talk about the wonderful Emma Rice for a, for a moment oh, of Knee yeah. High Productions. That was the last time I uh, I saw you, and we caught up. You'd played a wonderful Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Globe when when yes. Emma was running, and then that, and that was just magnificent. It it showed me how malleable Shakespeare can be, and I'd seen A Midsummer Night's Dream probably forty times, and yeah. I was seeing it anew. And I think that's my favourite production of the play oh, that so I've lovely. seen. Yeah. Um, so, it really, so tell me about Emma
1: Well, she's just another joyful person in my life I, I seem to be I do like the melancholy, heart-filled songs But I really love the joyful people to work with in the flesh She's got an energy about her that is It makes you be ridiculous and keep going in rehearsal Her whole thing is, do it again, do it again And it just makes you keep offering, you know, it's not a shutdown feeling. She's got an absolute skill of layering her criticism um, so that you don't feel mortally wounded, even though she can be, you know, (laughs) incredibly... She's very clever at making it so that she layers, you know... And now a combat role. I mean, you're just doing ridiculous things and she'll get out of you what she wants. But in a way that means... You know, sometimes when a director comes in, you think, oh, God, they're in tonight. With Emma, I often pretend she's in the audience, whether she is or isn't, because she's... ..because you think, oh, I can't wait to show you this, you know. It's... She takes a lot of the fear out. I mean, we did a... She directed a show of mine that was, you know, maybe going to Broadway. It was hair-raising. We were doing it in San Francisco, and every preview she would, even though I'd written it, she would totally chop and change bits so every preview was not just a few bits different but massive scenes rearranged and rewritten and I'd go out every night and think you know but she's like that's what it's for like this is that no one's going to die so suck it and see there's a huge sense of play with her that's not senseless it's um you know it's about layering more and more and more that's a great energy to have in rehearsal really great um but certainly that shakespeare piece you know when you're at the globe um you realize how you know it's that amazing hard wooden floor the audience is right close you just realize how much he was writing for you know for, for a person who works a lot without fourth wall there is you know you're not doing soliloquies you are talking to the audience so it felt very familiar to me as a person who's constantly reacting to a live audience in most of the shows I do that felt incredibly at home because you think of course you're talking about the house you're talking about you know this this wooden o the, the globe is literally the globe so there's double meanings to all of us which really make it feel much more communal, I think, when you're in that space and you feel how, um, again, you have to hold people. You can see everyone's faces. It's daylight. Uh, it's immediate. It's all those things about being fearless and immediate um, and allowing that to come out a pretty, you know, that that's what really struck me. And, of course, there's amazing, um, one of the wonderful voice people there. <laughs> Glyn, when I arrived um, a little bit late to start rehearsal because I've been doing my mermaid show uh, around the world and she took me on the stage and, and to stand between the two pillars, the, wood, the wooden pillars, and this is the supernal light. And she said, my darling, you're home. <laughs> 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 of course, I just burst into tears because I think it's part of every theatre person, you know, you... You feel the immediacy of the audience in that space, and that brings you back to the basics of what are you doing? You're telling a story, whether it's in a song or a play. You are really wanting to activate the people, and that's what that structure is. Um, it's pretty beautiful. It was a yeah. pretty beautiful experience. I mean, she put songs in that um, in a, in our version, and there was all sorts of you know terrible political outrage that there were lights and microphones and things like that. It was, was an amazing time to be there because I thought for people loved it or hated it and the haters were people who didn't come and see it. And, you know, at the end of each play you'll have the, the jig that sort of unites people and puts them back together. It was so magical and I just sort of felt if people could come And hear this audience going nuts and feel the sense of reunification at the end of each night. That's what theatre's about, surely. Mm. You go on a journey and and you somehow come out of it together, but with all of these dreams in your mind. It was beautiful.
0: So very yeah. much a, com- a communal experience but as a theatre maker she is she has such a sense of humour and such invention i first encountered her with that production of brief encounter which i, I saw at sanan's warehouse in brooklyn and then at yeah. studio 54 in in new yeah. york Wonderful. but y- you you were also did the umbrellas of Schoenberg with
1: her yeah which was um on the west end and that was because michelle legrand had actually seen her version of brief encounter and i think it was playing opposite Marguerite was it, yes, and he was like, "Why are there all those lines outside her show?
0: <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't and, dumb,
1: and he went in and saw it and loved it. and so that was um quite extraordinary working with him as well, with Michelle legrand um because he it was interesting when the producers brought him in. Of course, they put seats for him at the back of the room, you know, like sitting back to watch rehearsal. Straight away, he pulled his seats right up close and right next to the piano. Um, And Sheldon Harnick also came over who had done the English translation. So, I mean, it was kind of amazing to be in a room with these two extraordinary men. And then my character, La Maîtresse, had been written by Emma really as a kind of narrator to tie, because it exists originally as a film and a perfect film, I think, she made this character where I would sort of be bringing, I guess, bringing it into a more theatrical sphere. And um, so we had these, you know, amazing sessions with various songs that I might sing that didn't come from the film with Michelle just playing on the piano and saying, well, of course, there's this one and, you know, there's that one. I mean, these are the precious, these are the amazing experiences that... uh, yeah pretty pretty amazing and so there's actually a recording of him and i that is on the album with the with um, Thomas Lauderdale the Hotel Amore album uh from it's live from the stage when we he played for me in london um called Sans Toi, and then we added the horns later on um it's very beautiful i have to say gosh he writes a beautiful song
2: de bord des ouvertes un plan je suis une maison vide, sans toi sans Comme une île déserte Que recouvre la mer Mes plages se dévident Sans toi Sans toi Ambi de perte Ne autre de Je suis un vide Sans toi sans Oh, I'm a
0: Oh, you sing in a lot of tongues. Um, I languages, do. languages have always been part of present in your your academic study. Did you study languages as a child?
1: All the language. I think I'm just naturally gifted or gifted, depending how you want to say it. Which, um,
0: <laughs> which language you're speaking <laughs> in?
1: Exactly. No, I think I did study specifically French and German, and they have. You know, the more I think, you know, I sing in lots of languages and faux languages as well. But I really love a lot of that German material and French material. So, um, I think just getting your ear into uncomfortable or different places is really good for any artist, actually. And you know, like doing that, the um, the Mandarin song. You know that that's a really interesting period of music in in. um, Shanghai, the Shanghai jazz period, where you had a lot of Japanese film composers, which is why you might think it was Japanese. I like what it does vocally, you know. I like the, you know, when you're not bearing the burden of the mother tongue, you find new things with your mouth and your voice. Literally, you don't I think we're not as fearful in different languages, and it opens up what you can do. I feel like you you know, my voice singing in German's always opened up so much more capacity that then I bring back to singing in English. I mean, I still have a weird voice, but it suits that um sort of grotesquery and range. Um and similarly with you know French breathy sixties songs that I love, you know, I think it's all elements of play again where where singing in foreign languages can help you um really find the essence, locate the essence of the song because people, oh sorry about that, often can't um Know, we're not all fluent in these things, but you know, you're trying to absolutely present the essence of meaning, and at the same time, you know, it's already built into it. Those when they're good songs, I think you don't have to know, like Pirate Jenny singing that in German, for instance, you don't really need to know a huge amount to know that it's kind of terrifying and. I mean, again, it can be sung so many different ways, but I love, you know, I'll often give a little pre-spiel before I sing that and I still feel it's very clear what's happening, the specifics and the rage within it or the impotent rage perhaps, depending how you play it. I love that.
0: <laughs> Mia, we we share a passion for music from the Weimar era and also the the French repertoire. When did it all begin for you? Look,
1: I think it came through the tango, weirdly. I remember hearing some piazzola. I mean, I knew I loved the tango before then, but specifically um, the Argentinian composer Piazzola. Hearing that sort of really got me very excited. And then um, whenever I'd hear a concert of things, quite often I realised the music that I loved in that was a tango. And then... One time I was in very young in Germany and I went to a, a tango evening and um of songs and there are a couple of the songs that really stood out and I went to the performer afterwards, Sylvia Unders. She was the daughter of the famous tenor Peter Unders. And of course I hung around the stage door. I was little at this point and said, Oh, and we had this wonderful night. I think she was a bit excited to just have a totally, you know, <laughs> a total sick of Um and i asked her you know what were these two songs and she said oh they were um uh they were both uh, they were by the File. and then she gave me from the boot of her car two albums and the family that i was with in in um germany got their record player out of the attic <laughs> and, and i sat there and listened to these two albums of uh, Brecht and violent and Eisler and so there had been this I'd definitely been gripped a lot before but I didn't have it, it was like giving a name to you know like that as being the ones I kept going back to were Kurt Weil and then of course through you know literary studies I was a, across Brecht and then I guess the older I got, the more politically or just the more that I grew up, then this seems like the perfect combination of, of, um, well, a lot of the songs I love are just heartache songs actually, let's face it. Zorabaya Johnny has got to be one of the best songs ever. Um, I've sung it a million times. I've seen it done a million times and I'm always taken on a journey watching someone sing it, singing it myself. It means different things over the years. Like that's a great song that can keep, moving and changing and be reinterpreted, that's that's the best mix of music and text, I think.
0: Yeah, they're great narrative songs. They're great um, acting songs. Yeah. Uh, so what about discovering the interpreters like Marlena Dietrich and Lottie Lenya and uh, Edith Piaf?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they are... I never want to emulate them. I've never been interested in recreating them because they are such unique, brilliant forces. Uh. So they are just magnificent things. I found Nina Simone actually to be a huge, even more of an influence, really, because she is so unique, but her voice is so strange and wonderful. And I found that very inspirational about just going for the meaning and going for the text and going for the, the, the essence of the song. Um, but I love, I mean, I'm 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 very passionate about all of those artists that you've mentioned. And I also love listening to their voices change as they got older and how that all, uh, you know, l- listen to Lottie Lenya in the early recordings and the early film of the <laughs> Tripenny Opera, her singing pirate Jenny, amazing. And she doesn't move for the whole song. It's all in a high soprano and at the very end she just moves her arm. And then compare that to when she did it on Broadway and footage of fabulous arms going around. But still I think... You know, I often think, does that gesture remain, you know, that one where she was directed no doubt not to move and just one has this mystical eerie quality and the other has this flashy, but still, you know, I love that. So I saw, I was lucky enough to see um, Gisela Mai perform quite a few times in Berlin, and she was one of the great interpreters. Um, And what stuck, really struck me watching her was, even though it was all delivered in a good proletariat sort of purple suit, suit, pantsuit. When she sang about being 17, she looked 17. When she talked about being an old woman, she was an old woman. It was very, it was that right mix of um, stand and deliver and at the same time she still had this energy about her. I think, you know, Juliette Greco is another one that I have, particularly love, again, the sort of amazing charisma coming out of them um, that defies, the, I think, the political ideals of Brecht, of how a performer should perform. I think often these songs, you know, it's disingenuous to pretend that they're not vastly carried by <laughs> the charismatic forces that are, you know, the melting pot of the text and the music, and that's why... But if the song is good, it will it will carry on. So yeah, I love um Marlena, I love I just I guess again the survival of it. I love that she and Piaf were best friends, you know. I there's another amazing performer, Ingrid Carvin, who was Fassbinder's muse for a long time. They're, they're strange voices. Again, she has a strange voice, and they speak to me a lot because they take me out of any um world where I might know what's going to happen sonically. So I much prefer, a I mean, I love a pure, beautiful voice, but I really love something that feels lived in or unexpected.
0: It must be a thrill to... uh to complete the experience um, performing um, a Brecht a vial, when you're in a, a show like um, Thripney Opera, which you've done in Paris, or *or The yep. Seven Deadly Sins, where you're able to actually embody the character that those songs yeah. were were written for.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think, um, I mean, they're such dark works, really, and the, the songs in them were often stuck in, not in the way of normal music theatres, yeah. so they're not, you know narratively driven they are to stand out and be kind of a crunch against the text or the situations and brecht played a lot with what went in and for instance pirate jenny who sang it and when and whatnot but to be i think with the full orchestra and do that you know we sang it in performed it in um german in in paris and also in london but then you've got the whole issue of translation so different translators for the for the Paris version, obviously, with subtitles to the ones that we did in London. That's always something that has to be considered, I think. Seven Deadly Sins is amazing to perform because it's not these songs that were sometimes written before and then smashed together, you know, like all the brilliant songs in Happy End or in Thrippany Opera some of them Brecht had written years ago. I've got numerous versions of a different tune for Pirate Jenny. can you imagine? Wow. Um, it, I love all of this stuff. But something yep. like Seven Deadlies, it just, you know, it is, it was one of the, I think, you know, like Brecht and Weill were really over each other by the time they wrote it. It was a commission. Um, they were doing it for, you know, Edward James wanted something for his beautiful wife, the dancer Tilly Losh. Kurt Weill said, yes, all right, as long as my my lovely wife Lottie Lenya can be in it. Lottie Lenya insisted on her current lover, the tenor, being in it. And there's even rumors <laughs> that he and Tilly Losh hadn't been there. I love it all. You know, but um, you know, and it's this strident strident attack on, on capitalism. But It has, the music of it is just so thrilling, so Mm. thrilling. Mm. And um, the last time I did it was in Berlin and, you know, that's a place when you're performing that work, uh, you feel the weight of uh, one's foreignness and at the same time that's with the great conductor, Jurovsky. I mean... Listening to him work with the orchestra and pull things out of them, working with someone great like that, where the orchestra is beside themselves with excitement, that's that is really thrilling to hear. To hear it, but then other times when I've done quite a lot of that repertoire, um, actually with the Bash people, one time I did a concert and they brought like the highest, not high school students, but the like undergraduate players. And usually we would have the main orchestra playing, but we had the undergraduate players for a particular concert. And that was one of the best things ever because the conductor had to make the separate instruments play their lines. I actually got to hear the individual a lot more than when you're with a regular orchestra and they're just, you know, you're doing bars and sections, but to hear the sort of the deconstruction and the, the filaments, ah, oh, I mean, this is what I love.
0: I'm getting this goosebumps with just with your description.
1: Well, that's when it is. When you've got goosebumps, you think there is a point for this, there is a point for art. It should give you goosebumps. It should be terrifying. It should be healing. Um, you know, I've had such a strange thing in the pandemic of almost being unable to listen to music quite a lot, to being too raw. And um we I had just I'd uh, done some songs with, with Rufus Wainwright just before everything shut down, and I'd been listening to him on the plane. And it's like for months, I could only stay listening to Rufus. Just walking to Rufus was all I could. I was sort of like, that's, I can't cope with anything else. <laughs> I'd just stay where I was when the world fell apart. Um, and that's a voice that I love listening to for, you know, I think he's a beautiful songwriter, and it just goes to another, that's a kind of, you know, again, a ceiling off the roof sort of way to listen to him is very, very beautiful. So,
0: I suppose it was a safety and a security there in that that obsessive listening to him during that period.
1: It was when I was walking, I found that each song has a kind of transcendental moment, you know, at the the torch song, the 11 o'clock moment of each song basically would give me some kind of, um, I don't know, yes, it was a, safety, but I felt too raw to listen to. I did put on an amazing or collaboration that he did with um, Nigel Westlake called Compassion,
2: right. and he's
1: singing ancient um, Hebrew and Arabic texts, and it is absolutely exquisite. Again, these worlds, these ancient texts bumping up against each other with a beautiful singer like Lior and the I'm in the orchestra, it's absolutely exquisite. And I could listen to that because it felt prayerful, but it all felt a bit too profound in other ways to I felt very raw. It was very, I didn't have any funnies in me. And um I mean, <laughs> I didn't interview where I was saying, I must be like, because I sing backup vocals for Rufus in my walking. The mad lady with the headphones just particularly for his song, The Sword of Damocles. I'm doing the backup vocals. Basically, release me are the lyrics that I keep saying. Release me. And then a bit more. Release me. And I think it's a mad lady. Makes sense when you've got the whole song, but basically it's a mad lady walking around the streets just going, release me, release me. Release me. me. <laughs> it's nice, though, to hang on to those things. Um I had to have an MRI, everything is all right, but um, just last week and, you know, how incredibly noisy those machines are. Yes. Mm. Very noisy and they usually give you something really dreadful, if anything, to listen to. And um, things are getting, things are looking up, things are getting more modern Um And so during the MRI, they said, oh, we've got some meditation music. I said, that drives me nuts. I can't bear it's kind of pseudo-relaxing. It makes me mad. I said, can I have anything but meditation? And he said, oh, look, anything on YouTube. And I said, well, I'll have Pink Martini then. And what was so great was I just pretended that I was sitting in the dressing room and listening to the tinny noise coming through the tannoy.
2: Yeah, lovely. Lovely. I
1: was waiting to go on for the opening of Act 2 and with all, with some construction going on next to me, and so that is quite a good tip, listeners. I think for um, it, it kept my brain busy. There were just obviously you know bootleg filmings on YouTube, so there was slightly different. So I was able to be like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I know that thing. I know what's happening. This is where Thomas comes off stage and has a secret cigarette next to me, and then you know like it was good. Most pl- that and a massive valium. I do have to say that, that made helps. that right. It
2: helped.
1: <laughs> I think if I pretend I've got an audience there, it's terrible to say, but most life events become much more bearable. I have to pull myself uh, together if I've got an audience.
0: You're in a very uh, special position in that um, you were in the, the, the splits, film of cats. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, I'm in the splits. Oh the God!
0: <laughs> tell me about you're in the splits. Oh, okay, now get out of the splits um, and tell me about oh, cats.
1: Oh, what am I allowed to say that's not covered by my complete? silence and tongue tie it was pretty mad
0: what well, it was walking around a a studio set with all of those famous actors dressed as cats and kittens and
1: it was hilarious because also the set you know it was exquisite the set but it's all you know structurally enormous so you do feel like a little cat because you're you know, you're under table legs and, like, everything is built, you know, it's much bigger than you. So there's something um, very surreal about that. It was exquisitely painted and designed even though there was all the CGI. It was still, you know, huge uh, sound stages and streetscapes and cobblestones and, I mean, it was distressed velvet and tassels and, oh, it was gorgeous. (laughs) That was gorgeous. But it is a surreal landscape because everyone has... Apart from Judy, Dame Judy had a sort of, um, <laughs> she had almost a male, uh, fluoro green male, lo- loose-fitting silk suit and a sort of hoodie with her face sticking out. But everyone else had wig caps on, so we were almost kind of receding in our own faces anyway, if you know what, you know, like a yeah. wig, wig cap is so cool Pulls confused. it all back. <laughs> exactly. So we all had these hilarious sort of jumpsuits um, and, and and dots all over our faces plus shading. And, um, I mean, there were most, my big stuff was cut, which is a tragedy with Ray Winston. But I did spend a lot of time there and I can, I mean, it was pretty amazing because, you know, I love the dancers so much. So just watching, you know, these beautiful dancers from the Royal Ballet and New York City Ballet, and that's, that's how I became friends with Robbie Fairchild, who's, you know, Touring at the minute with an American in Paris. I mean, what a beautiful man! And so, I was sort of, even though it was a very stressful set, I would say, uh, watching someone like Robbie Fairchild dance. You know, again, again, again. It was just, it was. Ex- I mean, it was exquisite, absolutely exquisite. And watching Ian McKellen do, you know, take after take of Gus is the cat at the theatre. You know. <laughs> it was pretty fantastic So um, And I think Tom Hooper's a sort of director Who wants to shoot it And shoot it and shoot it and shoot it So even though you've got it in the bag I mean, that was kind of extraordinary That day of Ian Again and again and again Just perfection, perfection, perfection With Judy, Dame Judy Being his eyeline in a, in a little cat basket Licking her paws <laughs> <laughs> their necks in the air and it was it was pretty it was pretty surreal, I think. But all that remains of me is pretty much one very awkward rollover from behind and one kiss, one kiss on griddlebone. And uh our our the rays in my song was cut. <laughs> that whole storyline was sort of cut. Um which is quite something to find out at the premiere in New York City, I can tell you. <laughs>
0: Oh, you going along expecting to see it? It's one of my favourite moments in the show as well. Um, well Growl Tiger oh, and, and Griddlebone.
1: Yeah, me too. Obviously. <laughs> um, but you know, it was as as may have been gathered, it it was a fairly complex. You, you're very much not in control of yourself, and I just think I have so many. You know, there was that amazing scene on the boat where I'm sitting with Dame Judy and Surrey and Taylor Swift. Uh, Idris Elba, Rebel, James Corden, and Stephen McRae from the Royal Ballet, and Ray Winston. I mean, <laughs> and then I, the next I, day, I, half of them were there, and their body doubles were there. Now that's pretty hilarious.
0: I dare say, Mia, you've had a career where you've you've been pinching yourself every day of it. Yeah, how fabulous! Right,
1: really? I mean this this. I would advise everybody don't go into show business it's ridiculous unless you have the burning passion but um but if you have a sense of humor there are these things which are kind of gobsmacking <laughs> <laughs> and you know I've been to see an american in paris i hope everyone goes to see that those dancers just you know what a what a treat i thought all oh, the cast was fantastic but very special to see Leanne from Royal Ballet and Robbie Fairchild from New York City Ballet, I mean, and really dancing. Yeah,
0: uh, I, I agree. It's we- an exquisite, exquisite production, um, design-wise and all that dance and that that splendid Gershwin score.
1: Oh, just, I, did, did you see it on Broadway?
0: I saw it on Broadway and I saw it in okay. Sydney a couple of weeks ago um, and I've yes. seen the film a couple of times. I, I love it
1: the the minute that the the uh the overture starts i just burst into tears i mean i think there's so much so many hopes and dreams tied into that gershwin music it is magical but unlike something with like singing in the rain which i adore as a film i mm. think we know the film so well that we're always kind of waiting for the punchlines in the stage versions whereas an american in paris is not so well known and it's been so recreated yeah. Yeah. that it it's more of a mystery to behold on stage yeah but really, you know that sort of level of dance is like absolutely thrilling. When I saw it on Broadway, I thought, how will they do eight shows a week? You mm, know, mm. they're yep. they're otherworldly. Those dancers, I love them. Yeah,
0: my God, your inbox goes off. We've had, you've had so many emails during this conversation.
1: I'm so sorry, and I don't quite know how to silence notifications. There'll be something. Um, There'll be something. Is it going yeah, to
0: no, the list. The listeners been enjoying them. Who, who's your last email from?
1: It's saying something like interview with Ben Northey, six <laughs> thirty.
0: Oh, great! Oh, say hello to Ben. I've had Ben on the show.
1: <laughs> Isn't he wonderful?
0: He's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful conductor and musician.
1: I've, I um, I've, he's conducted my shows with <laughs> Melbourne Symphony and also the London Phil. Oh,
0: there's Ben writing back again.
1: Yeah, and uh, just between you and me, the famous London Phil concert where um, I didn't get a call for my own concert with London Phil and I was standing backstage, Ben's out there, and I thought, oh, someone's having a last-minute practice. And I was like, no, that's the whole orchestra. (laughs) standing there going, ha 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 how am I here? And all of that's on there. 88 musicians have gone on. And I looked at the little sort of stage and it was like, well, I was told to wait outside your dressing room. So I waited.
0: You did the, you were doing the right thing. Oh,
1: oh, oh the terror. <laughs> the horror. Every performer's nightmare. Pounding.
0: Oh, oh God. Meow, it's lovely to uh, to catch up with you again and, and uh, have you share many of the wonderful moments that you've experienced through a stellar oh, career. All,
1: I've listed um, all of them. There's nothing more, Pete.
0: <laughs> oh, no, there's all there. Um, audiences can catch you at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival on the Saturday, the 18th of June at 730 at Her Majesty's Theatre. Um, meow Meow's pandemon- Pandemonium. Um, with the Adelaide
1: with the- Symphony Orchestra.
0: Yeah, can't wait
1: that's really exciting if you can get to it Pete
0: yeah oh, if I can yes
1: yeah um it's um it is really I think you'd have a little teary um you'd have a little teary I think you'd go oh my girl's done good I think it's just the music it's just beautiful music all right darling
0: lots I of love see your face Thank you to Meow for the music heard in this conversation. Wonderful selections from the album Hotel Amour. Meow Meow with Thomas M. Lauderdale. The album includes duets with Rufus Wainwright, Barry Humphries, the Von Trapps and the late Michael LeGrand. If you'd like to hear more from Hotel Amour, the album can be found in Apple Music and Spotify. You'll be as enchanted as we have been in this episode. Meow Meow is a favourite at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival and she'll be back this year performing with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. Meow Meow's Pandemonium is playing at Her Majesty's Theatre on June 18th. Search out adelaidecabaretfestival.com.au for more information. And of course, bookings. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time.